When I was a uh, when I was a teenager, uh, Disney released uh, a movie called Aladdin. I can remember even as a teenager, we went to um, we went to the movie theater to watch it. And uh, actually, before uh, it was a Disney movie, Aladdin was actually a story uh, that was taken from uh, Middle Eastern folklore, and it was a story uh, about a young man. Uh, who was granted a certain measure of wishes and needed to, to figure out what was the wise wish to choose throughout the process. Well, in some ways, the scriptures have their own Aladdin story, and it centers around another young man, and that young man's name was Solomon. And the story goes that uh, uh, Solomon uh, his, was the son of David, and David was the quintessential king in Israel's history, and and David passes away, and the, th- the throne falls to Solomon. And Solomon is obviously a young man. He's nervous about uh, being the king, full of all sorts of inadequacies and worries, wondering whether he can live up to uh, his father's reputation. So God comes to him and literally says to Solomon, Solomon, whatever you want, I will give it to you. And I don't, the scriptures don't talk about whether Solomon really contemplated it or how long it took him to, to respond to God, but what Solomon asked for was wisdom. He didn't ask for, for, for uh, fame. He didn't ask for wealth. He asked God for wisdom, to give him wisdom, to lead this nation. And as a result, God gave him not just wisdom, but he gave him fame. He gave him riches. He gave him all the other pieces that came along with it. Well, the books of of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the ones that we're looking at this summer, are mostly attributed to that king. They're mostly attributed to Solomon and the wisdom tradition that came from King Solomon. And our passage this morning reminds us of that right from the beginning. I'm going to be reading uh, from Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. Listen to God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Eternal God, in the reading of your scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditation of our hearts, May your word be heard, and in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, If you were with us last week, and as Alyssa spoke about, uh, we began looking at this idea of wisdom in the Old Testament, and we talked about how wisdom choices confront us every day. We're confronted with things that require a certain measure of wisdom. And last week we saw that Proverbs uh, is very simple. It highlights for us a path that is the wise path, and it highlights a path that is the path of foolishness. 
And as we saw last week and in our text this morning, it was uh, written from an older generation to a younger generation, giving advice, giving wisdom on setting one's life on the path of wisdom versus the path of foolishness. And it's immediately applicable today. We all know that because we're confronted with wisdom choices, both big and small, every day. Some that we think about in the moment and some that just pass us by without even thinking about it. And it's good that God is eager to give us wisdom for life. There's this beautiful promise in the book of James that says, If anyone needs wisdom, pray to God and he will give it to you. So as you saw last week, God becomes this ultimate source of wisdom. His, his revelation, his revealing of himself in his law and his, and his covenants are the, the source of wisdom. And, and we even saw how Christ epitomized wisdom. He was wisdom in the flesh walking amongst us. So we came to the conclusion that this, this thing called wisdom is, is the art of It's not a a textbook or a formula, but it is an art of living skillfully according to God's design, his will, and his plan for our lives. But what we really didn't get to last week, and I thought about cramming it into the sermon last week, but I said, no, let's let's give it a whole sermon. Uh, We didn't talk about what Proverbs tells us is the essence of this thing called wisdom, and we see it in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. If you were paying attention last week, we saw the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 4, if you seek for wisdom like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So our passage this morning in verse 7, when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that word beginning has a much fuller concept than what we often realize. When we hear the beginning, we, you think, well, that's, that's the start of wisdom. But if you look in the Hebrew, that word beginning has a fuller sense. It actually has the sense of essence, that the essence or the heart of wisdom is this thing called the fear of the Lord. It, it's the start, the finish, and everything in between. It is the whole path It is the foundation, it is the cornerstone of wisdom. And if that's true, then it's probably really important that we understand exactly what the scriptures mean when they talk about the fear of the Lord. And what you often realize is it's this idea is not just limited to the, pro, to the book of Proverbs. It is really all over the scriptures. Psalm 111 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. And if you fast forward uh, to the New Testament, uh, in Acts chapter 9, it says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What's Acts telling us? It's telling us that that first church grew because they were characterized by the fear of the Lord. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament, all over the scriptures, you will find this idea of the fear of the Lord. So that makes it really important for us to understand what the scriptures mean when they talk about this. And so what I want, what I want to do is look at it really from, from two levels or two aspects. One is the fear and judgment. 
And the second is the fear in love. So let's first, let's first look at what I mean by the fear in judgment. Now, most people, when they see this idea of the fear of the Lord in the Scriptures, uh, they, they're quick to say that this isn't the, the fear of being hurt or it isn't talking about how we should cower in the presence of God or fear him. It, it certainly it can't mean that because that just doesn't seem really consistent. But we have to be very careful when we say that because in some ways that is only half right. And it's only half right because we, there really should be an element of fear when it comes to our relationship with God, and that is a fear that comes from judgment. And here's what I mean by this. Think back to, to, to Mark chapter 4, and uh, Jesus' disciples are, are in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus is asleep at the front of the boat, and all of a sudden, a big storm comes up. And the passage tells us that all the disciples in the boat were fearful of the storm. So they go up to the front of the boat, and they wake Jesus up, and Jesus stands up, and he calms the sea in front of them, right? All of a sudden, the disciples' fear has changed. They are no longer afraid of the storm. Instead, they are a little bit afraid of the person who is in the boat with them. They say this, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you go over to, to Luke chapter 5, you read the story of, of Peter and the fishermen and the miraculous catch. And if you remember that story, uh, these fishermen were out fishing all night. They couldn't catch a single thing. And then they come into the shore, and Jesus tells them to go back out, cast their nets in a different direction. They obey, and they get this miraculous catch, one that is so great that they can't even count how many fish uh, are in this catch, and their nets begin to break as a result of the multitude of fish. And if you remember Peter's response when he comes in from catching all those fish, he comes up to Jesus, and he says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, what Peter recognized in that moment was that he was in the presence of God himself. And he knew that part of God's godness was that he was a judge who judged between what was right and what was wrong. And if he was God, then he knew Peter's heart intimately, that, that nothing escapes his sight. So Peter was immediately cognizant of the fact that he was sinful standing before God. And that was a fear that had captures, captured Peter's heart that was much deeper than just simple reverence and respect. Uh, on July 8th, uh, 1741, so this date in 1741, uh, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards preached probably what was the most famous sermon in all of American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you had to, to, to read it in literature class at some point. Uh, but in that sermon, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards describes humanity like a spider. He had a weird affinity with spiders. Uh, but he described all of humanity as a spider that was hanging on a thread dangling uh, above a huge fire. 
And his point was that all of humanity is, is, is on a thin thread hanging before the fire and the fury of God's wrath. This sermon basically coined or, or certainly epitomized the idea of hellfire and brimstone. You've heard that before. Now, most Christians today and non-Christians alike will read a sermon like that and dismiss it in some ways as very uh, uh, archaic or contrived or whatever. But if you actually read the sermon, there's nothing in there that is not supported by the Scriptures. Because God is a judge. And the scriptures tell us that he will come in judgment once and for all. He will bless those who have obeyed and he will punish those who disobey. And that should cause those of us who are disobedient, people like you and me, to be fearful. Uh, Christian Smith, who is a, uh, a sociologist and, and a writer um, and, and uh, a philosopher out of Notre Dame, uh, did a lot of study on the movement of Christianity in, in America and modern culture. And uh, maybe you've heard this before, but he described uh, the modern uh, Christianity as moralistic therapeutic deism. And what he means by that is that for many American Christians, God is useful as a good source of morals or a moral compass or some way we ought to live our lives. He's also a, a cosmic therapist, one that we can go to with our problems who will offer us uh, comfort and advice. And because we view him as a source only of morals and therapy, then we all become deists, which essentially means that we find God useful for comfort and peace and advice, and so we only go to him when we really need him. And many people have said that that really is an accurate picture of American Christianity or modern Christianity. But what it does is it offers very little room for us to think of God as a judge. And so we become what Proverbs calls a fool, not really understanding who God is. Uh, Mike Metzger, who's a, a friend of mine uh, and, and also a, a blogger, lives in this area, uh, tells a story about how he went to uh, district court a few weeks uh, in Annapolis. And uh, I forget why he was there, but he sat and observed several cases that were going on during the district court uh, in, in Annapolis. And he noticed one certain accuser was brought up before the judge. And the judge very plainly said to the uh, accuser, you twice did not respond to the court summons that was sent out to you. And the, uh, the accuser kind of put his hands in his pockets and he shrugged his shoulders a little bit and he said, well, you know what, I have to say, I really felt like I did respond to the court summons. To which the judge says, you didn't, slammed his gavel down and the man went to jail. Now, we all see that and we say, well, that's a judge's job. That's what judges do. This is the way justice works. That is the way this system works to make judgments and to make rulings. But if the, and if that is true of human judges and, and the fact that they should deserve our honor, respect, for the, and fear for the power that they wield, 
how much more should that be true for the ultimate judge that we have in God? Because God, make no mistake, God is a judge. He will sift between right and wrong. He will punish sin, and we all stand before him as sinners who are awaiting judgment. But friends, this is where the gospel so sweetly comes in. Because what the gospel does is it points us to a way in which we can escape the judgment that we deserve. The gospel, it points us to Jesus Christ, the innocent one who took the punishment that we deserved for our disobedience. And what the gospel tells us is that when we come to him in faith, we experience the forgiveness of sins and we are rescued from the judgment that we deserved. And so here's what happens as a result of it. What happens as a result of the gospel is that our fear transforms. Our fear no longer becomes the fear of judgment. Instead, it becomes the fear of in love. I think uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, so beautifully pictures this for us. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, go out, buy them today, read them, you will not be disappointed. Uh, But in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, God is pictured by a great lion. Uh, And that lion's name is, is Aslan. And Aslan interacts with children from our world. And there's this beautiful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You've probably heard it before. When uh, these young children come to, to Narnia, this land in which Aslan lives, and they begin to learn that there is a great king, and his name is Aslan. And they begin, they, they long to, to meet him, to learn about him. And uh, they learn about him through uh, a, a Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And there's this beautiful exchange between the children and this beaver. Mrs. Beaver says this, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Proverbs would call that foolish. So one of the little girls looks at the beavers and says, Then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this is the part that everybody leaves off that I think is so important. Then one of the older children, Peter, says this, I'm longing to see him. You see, friends, God is a judge, but he is also good. And when we experience his special goodness in the gospel, Our fear of judgment is transformed. It is replaced by the fear in love. Tim Keller calls this transformation the change from the fear of being hurt to the fear of causing hurt. And what he means by that is no longer do we obey out of fear of judgment, Because all of that fear has been taken away, now we obey because of gratitude and love. Because our relationship with Christ carries such value to us 
that we would not want to do anything to upset or to harm that relationship. Uh, If you've been around City Church long enough, you've heard me talk about Chris before. Uh, Chris was a young man uh, who was uh, in a a youth ministry that I was a part of called Young Life when I was in Lancaster County, Uh, and Chris was a part of that ministry, and uh, Chris was probably uh, the the crassest and foulest young man that I've ever met in all of my years. Uh, He was perverted in most of his speech, generally ungentlemanly. He was rude, arrogant, and utterly selfish, and I'm not overstating things. But one day, all that changed. It was as if overnight, all that changed. Why? Because he got a girl. And all of a sudden, when he got a girl, everything about him changed. He cleaned up his language and behavior. He was kind. He was sensitive. He was gentlemanly. He was, he was holding doors for people. And he was all around an incredibly selfless guy. We could hardly recognize him. Now, why did he change so much? What changed so much was that his affections had been won over by another person. And he didn't want to do anything to cause any sort of harm to that relationship. So it changed everything about his behavior. Friends, this is what the gospel does to our fear. It changes us our fears from judgment to love. Think about it this way. If Christ in love chose me from the foundation of the world to be the object of his overwhelming grace, if he's come in time and in space to redeem me from the filthiness of my own sin, if he has come to rescue me and bring me into the light, delivering me from the path of destruction, then there is nothing I would ever want to do to upset or cause any harm to that relationship. John Newton was uh, the author of what is probably the most famous hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. And if you know John Newton at all, if you've looked at his story, he was probably a reprehensible human being, a lot like my friend Chris. Uh, He was involved in the slave trade and all sorts of of horrible sins until the gospel got a hold of his heart and changed everything about him. And think back to one line in that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You see, when he was talking about fear there, he wasn't talking about fear in judgment. He was talking about fear in love. So friends, if you, if you want or need to find wisdom, then know that here it is. One, one author that I read this week said this. He said, I need wisdom like I need oxygen, water, and love. So friend, if that is you, if you need wisdom, then look no further than the fear of the Lord. And so if you're here and you haven't experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, then know that you have every right, you ought to fear the judgment of God. 
So instead, stop living on the path of foolishness. Stop living on the path that lives ignorant of God and his justice. And instead, flee to Jesus Christ and embrace the gospel in faith. But know that when you do, your fear will be transformed. Because your relationship with God will become so precious to you that it will lead you to live a life of reverence, of gratitude, and love for God. This, friends, is the essence of wisdom. Let's pray.